All right. Grab a seat. Hey, Jarrett, can you tell those 50 people in that hallway that it's an open air thing where we can hear them as though they're in here doing that? I don't mean to shame them, but I do. Hey, all right, family. Um, my name is Colby, and I serve as the teaching elder here at the church. And uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, as kind of a lead-in, I, I want to uh, maybe talk about shame for a second. Uh, and because in our text, my main focus is going to be one verse. And in order to get there, I'm going to have a super long uh, runway. The verse that I want to get to is verse 38 of chapter 8 of Mark. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's where I want to get, uh, but before I do, um, I think because shame has taken on a different identity in our culture, I want to kind of biblically back up and set the context for how the Bible discusses shame before we get there. Now, for you, you may not remember, uh, but if I had to pause and say, what are three times in your life that were the most shameful that you've ever experienced? Like something that you did it, and I'm saying like bigger than walking on stage in middle school with your zipper down or something like that. I'm saying like, what was three things that when you did them, your soul just shriveled up on the inside? Like, do you remember some shameful things that you did, or maybe that were done to you, that literally changed who you are? Like it for some of us that have had shameful experiences, like the, the sins of our youth, were so shameful that we hid from our parents or pastors or friends what was really going on inside of us, and we became a split person where on the inside we were one person, and on the outside we were another. To this group of people we were one thing, and to this group of people we were another. And a lot of times... What we did or did not do was based on shame. Like if you tried to do music and you pulled the trombone and you blew air through it and it sounded like a chupacabra dying and someone said, you are just, you are terrible. Has, though, has anyone ever picked up music and the first time you touched an instrument it didn't sound like you were killing a small animal. But because someone's comments shamed you, you maybe have never touched music since. Or you started to draw and it looked like you didn't have thumbs. And people looked at that and it says, I think it's a Picasso, right? Or, or you, you started to come to church and to get into the Bible. And you couldn't pronounce the word Abimelech. And so you were reading in church and you got to one of those Hebrew names none of us know how to pronounce correctly, right? We just say it fast with confidence. And somebody else came in and mocked you for that and you felt so, you got embarrassed 
because you didn't know the Bible, right? Church, listen to me. Shame, right or wrong, and I'm going to argue there is right or righteous shame or wrong shame is powerful. It's powerful. It's been powerful throughout your whole life. It is a deterrent not to do certain things. It has motivated you to do other things, to avoid it. Shame is powerful. I, I, I'm going to start with a, uh, a story about rap music, and I'm going to end with country music at the end of the sermon. All right? So stay with me. Um, there is a non-Christian comedian uh, named Dave Chappelle, who I know none of you know because you don't watch that stuff. All right? Dave Chappelle, not a Christian, told a story in one of his comedy sketches about a rapper named DaBaby. I've never heard DaBaby, but from what I understand, he's Ronnie Posey's favorite rapper, all right? It's just what I know on the street, okay? And he's not here today, so that's what he gets, all right? You skip church, that's what happens, all right? So it's DaBaby, and he tells this story about DaBaby. DaBaby was a rapper that grew up literally on the, like, not just rapping about it, he's on the wrong side of the tracks. Had an altercation in Walmart and shot a guy and killed a guy in Walmart, which... Actually, if you've been to Walmart, it makes, makes a lot of sense. It was self-defense, though, but uh, there's apparently, wherever the baby's from, he had a shootout and killed a guy in Walmart. But he's not most famous for that. That affected his career zero. But recently, this rapper at a concert got up and made statements that were perceived as anti-homosexual, anti-gay, or transphobic. And now, he's getting canceled. Which the, guy, which the comedian, Dave Chappelle, says, you can literally kill a guy, and it'll affect your career zero, as long as you don't hurt a gay person's feelings. Now, I'm not agreeing with every assessment that Dave Chappelle makes in that joke, but here's what I would say. In our culture, agree or disagree, our culture has weaponized shame. We've weaponized it. Like, if you don't agree with us, like, we're going to shame you. We're going to dox you on Twitter. Which, by the way, Twitter's not a real place. Like, we're, we, we will destroy your career, your business, your family. If you don't agree with us, and if you, don't, if you don't say the things that we say, or if you're silent where we think you should be saying something, we will shame you to the point of oblivion. Now, I'm not agreeing with baby's comments or Dave Chappelle's, but I use that as a, like, to diagnose our culture. We are, like every culture in the world, now listen, Krokos, I, I believe this with my heart. You may not agree with this. Every culture in the world is, is honor-based and shame-based. Every culture in the world is honor-based and shame-based. The question is, what do they honor and what do they shame? And does that, maybe the more important question, does that align with God's word and truth? So, here's the thing. We're going to talk about shame this morning. Both right shame and wrong shame. But before we do, can we maybe just uh, pray and ask for God's help? Because um, I know for, for many of us, our sin is going to block us from hearing anything today. And so let's just ask for God's help in the hearing of his word and the preaching of the word. Would you bow your hearts and minds? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And goodness gracious God, start here. Invade heaven to earth right here in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. Take your word, preach it through a weak vessel such as myself. Enable me to preach it accurately with clarity. God, make the gospel explicit. God, um, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and break open the minds and hearts of my friends who have gathered here today. God, don't let their shame or guilt or sin be a block that stiff arms your spirit and God, what you want to do in their lives. God, I pray that you would set people free from shame and guilt today. Shame and guilt that really does exist that should alert us that something's wrong. God, raise our attention and our eyes from earthly things and set them on heavenly things. Father, you're the shame taker. And so, God, we just ask that you come do a gospel work here in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. amen. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Genesis chapter 2. Like I said, this is going to be a long runway. Genesis 2. I want to set the context for Mark 8, 38. Genesis 2, starting in uh, verse 20. By the way, if you have me do your wedding, I'm probably going to come here, all right? Uh, the man gave names to all the livestock. God had previously paraded them before him, seeking a helper that he might not be alone. Parades him, and he gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's just, uh, I don't care as much as you love your dog or cat, they don't fit you uh, the way that your spouse is supposed to fit you. Unless you full-on orangutan, all right? So, 21. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Now, I don't have time to teach all this, but I'd say this. Out of man's dream state, out of his unconsciousness, he took woman. And so there's a way in which men and women complete one another that is far beyond the physical and gets into the very unconsciousness that we have with each other. It's a spiritual connection in how we complete one another. But I don't have time for all that. He took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Now, I'd say this again for all my dads in the house. God was the first father that gave the daughter away. And so God brings the daughter to man. And the man said, this is at last. I've searched the whole earth. There's nothing like this. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Which I tell this, you, you may not be paying attention theologically, but basically this last verse is a poem. It's a song. And when God parades a naked woman before a man before the fall, he does nothing but sing. Which is basically most of the music on the radio. Um, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Any amens in here? It, it didn't say hold lightly. 
hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Oneness is the goal of marriage. Oneness. Verse 25, this is where I want to hone. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Not ashamed. Not ashamed. That I could be completely transparent with you. I'm not hiding anything from you. You can see me as I am. And this has nothing to do. I don't, not nothing. It, it has very little to do with their perfected bodies previous to the fall. This has to do with transparency of soul. That you can see me as I really am and there is nothing of shame that, make, that would make me want to hide from you. That make me want to run from you. Now we'll learn in Genesis uh, chapter 3 about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That this tree is the knowledge of good and evil. That in the garden, Adam and Eve lived by faith in God who knows all things, determining what is good and what is evil. Taking of the tree is to say in pride, God, I know better than you. And when they take of this fruit and they enter into the fall, see, the problem is we always choose evil. And the result of that, if you know this story, is that they begin to run and hide from God. Because where there was once naked and unashamed, there is now shame and i got to cover myself. And so they go and they try to fix it themselves. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. Because I can't let you really see who I am. But because underneath this, there's something I'm ashamed of. And so they run from God. They hide from God. But their own ability to cover themselves is insufficient. As insufficient works. Or that mask that you wore into this room is to cover up that you are actually a good person. Simply nothing other than fig leaves. You cannot cover your own sin. So God in the scriptures, he slaughters an animal and cover them with the, anim- the skins of animals. Teaching them that blood must be shed in order for you to be atoned or covered. Theologians call this, in the left side of the book, the proto-evangelion. Evangelion, the word for gospel, proto-before. This is the gospel before the gospel. That in order to cover what is shameful, there must be an atoning sacrifice. This is the context of how the Bible starts. When the Bible wants to describe to you paradise, the Bible says no shame. That's paradise. Just you, your naked spouse, all kinds of fruit, garden. I mean, I don't think about gardening naked, but, you know, whatever. And just no shame. No shame. That's how the Bible begins. Now, I've got a slide up here. I'm going to break two of my rules or habits. One is I hate PowerPoint. And two, I hate doing a whole bunch of scriptures that I might mess up out of context. But here's the thing. I want to give you kind of an arc of how we get from Genesis to how we get to Jesus. Okay? And so I'm going to give you just, let's look a little bit at what the Bible says about shame. Okay? Uh, Go to the next one. 
Isaiah 47, so we're going into the prophets. The result, and they're communicating to mankind. The prophet says, your nakedness, look how he's drawing off of this Genesis picture. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance, I will spare no one. Our sin creates shame that unless it's repented of, God will expose. All right, go to the next one. There's a bunch of these. Job 8.32, your enemies will be clothed. Look at the clothing illustration here that's going on. With shame. And the tenants of the wicked will be no more. Or the tents, sorry, of the wicked will be no more. Go to the next one. This is basically saying that the wicked have a righteous shame that God exposes. I will clothe his enemies, speaking of the Psalms, to the righteous one. I will clothe his enemies with shame. And his head will be adorned, but his head will be adorned with the radiant crown. So one side over here is, if you are wicked and you are in opposition to God, you will be clothed rightly for your sin and shame. But if you are God's people, you are adorned or clothed with the crown. Do you see the juxtaposition of two types of interaction with God based on your shame? Go to the next one. Zephaniah 3.5 The Lord within her, speaking of the church or God's people, is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, He dispenses His justice. And every day, He does not fail. Yet the unrighteous, listen to no, no shame. It's not that they don't have shame. It's that they don't acknowledge it. Do you see the problem? It's that they do sinful things that creates in their soul and in the culture shame, but they refuse to know it. So here's how we say it in our vernacular. They're just not owning it. They totally blew it. They're in opposition to God, but they, they're just not owning it. All right, so go to the next one. Daniel 12.2. I love this verse uh, because I, I, I think it... Um, kind of gets right into what is happening at the end times with Jesus as the judge in uh, Mark 8, 38. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. So this is the, the last judgment. By the way, the Old Testament is prophesying where he'll separate the sheep from the goats. So he's saying those in the dust will raise up. This is the resurrection at the last time. Some to everlasting life. I thought heaven and hell was only in the New Testament. Wrong. Some are raised to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you understand the direction that you're going is everlasting one way or the other? And this is Dan. This is Old Testament. This is the prophets speaking of eternal things. Um, go to the next one. Isaiah 45, 17. Now there's a shift here. God is rightly like a doctor diagnosing the sin and shame problem, but he doesn't leave them without the hope of a cure. So the prophets, if you've ever read the Old Testament, are like, like 90% God's wrath and justice, and at the last 10%, they offer a way of escape and a way of hope. And so Isaiah 45, 17, but Israel will be saved by the Lord, with an everlasting salvation. That makes complete sense of what Daniel is speaking of. You will never be 
put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. Church, do you realize the Old Testament anticipated a day in eternity where shame will be no more? Like we're returning to the garden, a paradise. There's no shame anymore. It's not here, but it's coming. Go to the next one. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. This is a prayer in the Psalms. They sang this. Do not let me be put to shame. Isn't it the heart cry in our lives to be, do something honorable and be honored? And in God's word, the psalmist sees a pathway to a life that is not ultimately ending in shame. But honor. Go to the next one. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of your shame... Church, listen, receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you'll receive your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And an everlasting joy will be yours. Who wants to believe that Bible verse for yourself? Go to the next one. Now, is it exclusive to the Old Testament? No. Look at how the New Testament is going to, at the same time, diagnose... The same thing the prophets are diagnosing, that in this life, wickedness is shameful, and we might experience shame for righteousness, but there's coming a day where there will be no more shame. Listen to this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down, that's what you do when the work is done, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross had a shame that you put there by your sin that Jesus embraced instead of scorned. Scorning its shame. He had no fear or no embarrassment. He took it so they might have you. Romans 10, 11. Romans has this whole idea very well laid out. Um, which we'll come back to at the end of this slide. Romans 10, 11, as Scripture said, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. Go to the next one. Revelation 16, 15. Jesus speaking. Look, I come like a thief, unexpectedly. This is again eschatological. It's the end times. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains, listen to the Genesis language, Closed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, church, we would understand if we could study Revelation out. This is us clothed in his righteousness. Not be shamefully exposed. Go to the next one. He writes to one of the churches in Revelation. We did a whole series on the churches of Revelation. You can get that online. But from one of them, he he wrote, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see that there's a shamefulness from some who attend church but not the church. And he's saying for them, let's do an exchange. You give me your sin and I'll give you white robes to clothe your nakedness. Go to the next one. 1 Peter 4.16, this is going to be key because we're going to come back to Peter and Mark 8. So I want you to kind of store this, not on the back burner, but somewhere in the middle. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, which can be embarrassing, right? The fact that brothers and sisters are losing their possessions all over the world. That people could lose their jobs. If you suffer as a Christian, if they beat you, if they kill you, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Things that we are not ashamed of, says that coward Peter who denied Jesus at one time in front of a fire next to a teenage girl calling him out. Now he's to the point where he's ready to die in Rome, inverted on the cross, because he's not worthy to be crucified right side up like his master. Peter's going to take an inverted cross in Rome, and he's going to encourage Christians like you and like me to not be ashamed of suffering. It's part and parcel with discipleship. But praise God that you bear that name. What name? Christ's name. You are a Christian. Wear it like a badge of honor, even though they make it out to be a badge of shame. 1 Peter 4.16, go to the next one. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. But the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Ultimately, what awaits you at the end is not dishonor if you believe in Christ, but honor. Go to the next one. We're now down here by the end. What benefit did it reap at the time when you did things that you're now ashamed of? What that's basically saying is, at one time, you did some foolish, hot mess of sin, and it brought you nothing but curse and death. When you chased your sins, they cursed you. They shamed you, and they brought death into your life. Isn't it right to be ashamed of those things that came forth? Those things result in death. 621. Go to the next one. This is where it's going to turn and where I kind of want to end. Two things that Romans 1 is going to talk about. The first one is... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, first into the Jew and also into the Gentile. Not be ashamed of the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 8. Anyone that is ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed. He says, Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's go. Look at the same chapter, same conversation. Look at Romans 1. Go to the next one. When Paul begins to lay out his case, and he lays out everything from rebelling against parents um, to homosexuality, morality, the same thing that Jesus said in 8.38 when he says this. Jesus is Guiding our generation is the, from the fall to the restoration of Jesus at the second coming, making all things right. That generation is sinful and adulterous. The same indictment of Paul is the same indictment of Jesus. In the same way, men also abandon natural relations for women. The speaking of homosexuality. And were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. The Bible 
was going to call sexual immorality in whatever form it takes shameful. This, this is, we have an understanding of this on a level, right? Because certain times there's been sexual activity that maybe you or I have done and it's caused us to do what we call a walk of shame. Where we hide our head and we're afraid to show our face. If somebody else knew about it, it would embarrass us. It would break us. And he says that these sinful acts are shameful acts. And so this is how the the Bible begins this trajectory about are you embarrassed about God, about Jesus, about His Word? Or are you embarrassed about your sin? And I think the assumption is, is that you're probably not embarrassed about both. You are either feeling shame because you are God's people and feeling shame because you are a Christian or you're feeling shame for your sin. Doesn't that kind of seem to be the arc read as we look at the passages? Now, let's look at verse 31 in chapter 8 of here because like I've said, this is the mountaintop of, of Mark with the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is my last sermon here. We've taken like four weeks and we've said it's like a ski slope. There's different paths you can take down it. And so I'm going to pick up a few of those, but I'm going to take a different route down, Dave Rick. All right? I've got to give some ski analogies or I don't know if you're going to stay with me here. All right? So 31. And he began to teach, Jesus began to teach them, I'm going to come back to this in a few weeks as well, that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Rejection, suffering, killed. Is that what your Bible says? Are we straight so far? And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and we've joked every week. The reason you know he said it plainly is because Peter got it. Right? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, I don't have enough time at this juncture to talk about maybe what Peter is thinking. But at minimum, he's thinking, Jesus has come, he's going to conquer right? And to be close to this dude who can make bread for thousands of people and by miracles people, he's going to set up his earthly kingdom now. And he's going to do it by conquering Caesar. So when Jesus comes in, and this is the first time in Mark, begins to introduce his rejection, his suffering, right? His crucifixion. By the way, let's give Peter some grace. In the Old Testament, the Messiah coming to conquer and to be the king is, and we believe it as Christians, as the second coming. But what Peter conveniently overlooks is that the Messiah is also prophesied to be bruised for our transgressions and beaten for our iniquities. Is anybody trying to read the suffering verse? 
Give me the triumph person. I got victory in Jesus, right? We can read the Old Testament or the New Testament. We can read the Bible and only look for the feel-good verses. Amen? And the hard verses, like ain't nobody trying to memorize lamentations. Right? So when Messiah has clear prophecies about suffering, the Jews, like us today, just, we have a cataract for that kind of stuff. And I think Peter in some way gets what Jesus is saying for himself. Here's what he's saying. If my master is going to be rejected, and if my master is going to suffer, and if my master is going to be crucified, what does that mean for me? If they called him a demon, what are they going to call me? If they nailed him to a cross, what are they going to do to me? I got... I have no idea how someone could follow the most dividing man in history and think that everyone is going to love you. If, and what's that mean for me? Trying to be, put Jesus up on, naked up on a cross, exposed, nailed up there to some cross? Not me, cousin. Jesus, you've got to fix your... God, you've got to change your plans. i got a better idea than a cross. i got a plan that ain't nobody got to suffer, including me. Church, do you know that suffering is the way of the Christian? It's a path. It's our Via Dolorosa. In, in, in Jerusalem, you can go to Jerusalem, I've been there. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church, they have like these 12 stages that are set up. Have you ever seen that before? You could go in. It's the 12 stages of the Via Dolorosa. And it's Jesus' trial, his whipping, his crucifixion, d- different aspects. And it's called the Via Dolorosa. It's the way of suffering. And you can see each stage of the cross. You can go to Jerusalem and you can actually walk the steps that Jesus took on his way to the cross. Jesus calls people to deny themselves and take up their cross. Jesus is inviting them to follow in his footsteps on their own Via Dolorosa. You are, Christian, a condemned man, a condemned woman, carrying your cross to your Golgotha to meet Jesus. We talked about the Christian that resisted Hitler last week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He invites him to the Delarosa. Because Jesus refuses to let you know him, or to interpret him, or to follow him through any other way besides the cross. So what's happening here with Peter? Here's what's happening with Peter. Peter's embarrassed about Jesus. Peter's embarrassed about Jesus and he's reluctant to follow Jesus to his own cross. Peter's reluctant to give up his life and to lay it all down. Um, Parents, listen to me. Maybe this will connect with you in some way. Um, Parents, do you remember when you were cool? I mean, seriously. 
Because I never forgot. Like, I, my kids forget, but they didn't know me. At one time in my life, I was a cool person, all right? Apparently, that's gone, all right? For all of us um, kids, have you, have you ever, I mean, not all of my illustrations are for everybody. Kids, listen to me. Has anybody ever seen the new Spider-Man movie, Into the Spider-Verse? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, four hands. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> this illustration is for four of you. There's a new Spider-Man. It's no longer Peter Parker. It's Miles Morales. And his dad is a cop, and his dad drives him in the cop car. And in the cop car, he's got, like, the microphone, and they're talking, and the, the kid's kind of like, oh, my dad's so, oh, he's so, so uncool. So he gets out, and it's like prep school, the new Peter Parker, the new Spider-Man. He gets out, and the dad says, parents, you get this. I love you. And the kid turns around and says, yeah, and begins to walk into the school. And the dad's like, not having it. Grabs the microphone and goes, uh, you're supposed to say I love you back. And all the other kids at the school are like, like, look at him. He's like, dad, not right now. I love you back. That's the only right answer. And the, the kids are looking at him. He's like, dad, please don't. It's like, you say it. I love you back. And he's like, I love you back. He's like, uh, copy that. And he just drives off. Right? Isn't there this thing where all of us at one time, uh, maybe, especially us that were raised by our peers at school instead of raised by our parents, that because we wanted their approval so much, we didn't want to associate ourselves with our parents. They became uncool. How about this? Our parents became embarrassing. And so because we wanted this approval, we're ashamed of this. Even though that group of peers, uh, adults in here, how many people are spending you know significant amount of time with 50% of the people you graduated high school with? Anybody? Oh, weird. Those super important people, you know, that jury of peers that you think about all the time? They have no idea who you are except on Facebook. And we all know that's a lie. Right? How many of us in here that long after high school was over, our parents continued to love us? Right? It's funny what we're embarrassed about. Peter, if we want to set the context for verse 38, is embarrassed about Jesus. And that's maybe where we get into this thing where Jesus calls, in verse 34, calling the crowd to him, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. I, I taught about this already. Deny himself. Nobody blocks your coming to God more than you do. Nobody blocks your coming to God more than you do. That's why self-denial is absolutely necessary and impossible apart from the gospel. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and for, gain the world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you know what the word for soul here? Psyche. It's where we get the word psychology. Psychology is the study of the soul. Give in return for his soul. And so I said this before. This is Jesus using accountant language, right? Save, forfeit, exchange. This is Jesus using tax for the tax collectors in the crowd. 
for the four of you in here that like math. This is Jesus out here saying, I'm giving you the gospel on, in math terms. It's not worth it to live for what is temporary at expense for what is eternal. So come, let's reason together. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? And many of us, at points of our life, have sold out way shorter for the whole world. It didn't take the whole world. It just took a little bit of sin. A little bit of the world. And we forfeited our souls. So Jesus is trying to reason with us, Randy, with finance and math language. By all means, get it. And then he comes down into this. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, Peter, listen to me, of him, Peter, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. One of the most powerful things about this, do you realize that Jesus just set himself up as the eternal figure that you'll give an account to at the end of days? He is the God who you answer to, who is coming in the glory of His Father and the holy angels one day. You know, like Tupac, lots of people get all this tattoo, only God could judge me. Church, that should scare you to death, right? Like if I judge you, like I don't know your whole life, I don't know every detail, only God can judge me. Like I am limited in my scope to understand your life. God sees absolutely everything. And He will not be bribed. You ain't going to argue your way out of this one. One of the ironies here of judgment in the Bible, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, one of the ironies about God's judgment is that oftentimes His judgment is simply giving people what they want. Like in Romans 1, they wanted godless existence. I don't want God in my life. I want separation. And God at some point says, if that's what you want, here the hell is. God giving you what you wanted. You chose a life of separation from Him, and so God honored it. You wanted to shame God and shame other people with your sins. God's like, you chose same. I will give you the shame that you demanded in life. And in that way, there is an ironic justice to God giving us the very thing that we choose in place of Him. I mean, is there no better definition of being cursed than living without God? He says, you, you chose that. Now, here, let's, let's talk about shame for a second. Um, shame, like what I've talked about it, depression. Shame is your soul telling you something is wrong. Right? And I know that we like to say that shame comes primarily from the outside in. And I'm going to argue shame primarily comes from the inside out. People on the outside either rightly identify it or wrongly try to heap it on top of you. Which we can use other language like condemnation in that way. But I'm going to primarily say shame begins on the inside of us and that even if 
there was no crowd pointing fingers at us would be an internal witness that it's the check engine light of your heart, people. Like when you do something shameful, something sinful, and shame builds up in your heart, like you poured sugar in the gas tank, that the computer's going to know something's wrong in there, and it's going to light up like a Christmas tree. You hear what I'm saying? It's your soul saying something is out of order, something is wrong. Again, the word soul is psyche. It's where we get psychology. So here's the thing. My argument is there are no quick fixes to shame. You can't take enough drugs to fix a shame problem. It's a rotting of the soul. It is rusting out from the inside and you can pump drugs in from the outside and it won't fix the heart. Do you hear me? We could take away everybody in your life that from the outside shames you and it still wouldn't fix the problem that's boiling inside you. Do you hear me? We can get all the group therapy and they can tell you everything you want to hear. You can get counselors. We can make whatever sin you love the most popular in culture and you will still be internally guilty. I know that's controversial because we in our culture believe that if we applaud sin loud enough, God's going to somehow forget it or change how we were made to make it work for us. Church, it's just not going to happen. So here's my premise. Shame cannot be beaten with drugs or ultimately swept under the rug by our peers. Shame, it must be nailed to Jesus on the cross for the sin that caused it. It has to be given away from the one who knows us to the very bottom of us. He's got to take our shame and we've got to put it on the cross. That's where our shame belongs. And I know that that is highly, in our culture, controversial. Because here's the thing. There are people that are deconstructing the Christian faith. Deconstructions. And one of the things that they are saying is, if I have a desire inside me uh, to use my sexual organs with whomever or however I want, and Christianity is coming from the outside saying, what you are doing is wrong, my desires are pure, And so Christianity must be oppressive because it from the outside is not allowing me to do everything that I want to do. And so if you're not applauding the sin that I am pursuing, you are causing me harm or trauma. And I would argue with this, Christianity does cause trauma that way. The exact same way that a doctor causes trauma to a body by ripping open the chest cavity of someone that will die of a heart attack and doing a heart transplant and sews that thing up, lets the person die. Is there trauma in cutting that thing open? Absolutely. It's life-saving trauma. And they would say, 
If you don't applaud me, if you don't agree with everything that I do, Christianity must be evil because my desires are somehow perfectly pure. Okay, help me out with that. Because all you got in behind you clapping is Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. Every pedophile is saying, yeah, I got desires too. What's wrong with mine? Every rapist, how about Stalin? Stalin had a desire to kill 100 million people. Who are you to say that he did that? So maybe here's the question. If we're going to shame or honor, a really good question is, come on, tell me, where are you drawing that line? Do the rapists get drawn in? Do the Stalin? Where are you drawing the line? And maybe here's a better question. On what authority and are you drawing the line there? And not here. It's all subjective. Then we're all just drawing the line in different places. And we're all saying, don't shame me for whatever I draw the line. Even if me and a pedophile are drawing it in the same place, me and a racist are drawing it the same place, get out of here with all that. That is the ultimate, I'm going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God, I know good better than you know good, and I know evil better than you. As though I created myself, and I know how reality works better than the God who is sovereign over it. It is the height of arrogance. It's the height of arrogance. So here's the thing. Where are you drawing your line, and on what basis are you drawing it there instead of somewhere else? So here's my thing. Whatever that authority is that's telling you to draw the line here instead of where the Bible draws it, whatever that authority is, that's your God, and it's just not as good as the God of the Bible. It's just not as good as the God of the Bible. Now, I understand there's inherent problems with this, and I can turn this conversation just a slight different way. The problem is that when we draw the line in wrong places, we shame people for the wrong reasons. Or we honor them for no reason at all. And Satan can use the shame of past sins to cause us to do future sins. See, there's a danger when we draw the line in the wrong place. But because we begin to honor that which is dishonorable, and we might shame that which is even good. And isn't that exactly what happens in this verse? That for us, we are going to have a culture that's going to draw the line somewhere else and try to shame us for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter, coward here, wrong here, embarrassed here, is going to come back in that verse that I showed you. And he says, do not be ashamed when you suffer. Do not be ashamed when you suffer. Be thankful that you bear the name of Christian. Jesus says, if I can just, I wish I could repeat it a hundred times. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in his glory with his holy angels. The enemy will twist shame from previous sins into future sins. So watch out where people draw the lines around you. If I can encourage you as a pastor to one thing as we close this up is that give Jesus your shame ASAP. If you've got a sin that is boiling in your heart, that is rotting you out, repent of it and give him all the shame. All the shame that you rightly deserve, let him take it. 
I love in Isaiah 6, I almost thought about not referencing this, but it's too powerful. In Isaiah 6, the prophet goes up and actually sees heaven. And there's an altar there, which I don't have enough time to teach, but there's an altar in heaven that parallels the one on earth, which is this whole idea of an eternal sacrifice that covers sin. And the prophet says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people with unclean lips. And it says that one of the seraphs, one of the angels, comes and flies, which I always loved. The, the Bible just is not what you think it is. Like, it's not little, your aunt's little precious moments, baby angels flying around in a diaper and like a harp. Like, when an angel in heaven flies, it's an F-16 fighter jet, and usually people kind of pee their pants a little bit when they see one. All right? How often in the Bible does an angel appear and people just pass out? Right? Angel flies down and takes a coal, what the assumption would be it'd be a bloody coal, because there's blood on the altar that attempts, whole other thing, takes the bloody coal, and if you think about like a hot charcoal, the last place you'd want to touch that is maybe your lips, and it says that he takes the bloody coal, applies it to the man's lips, and he says, see, your sin is atoned for, and your guilt is taken away. These are the doctrines of expiation and propitiation. Your sin that would separate God from you is propitiated. It is taken away. And the guilt and shame that you have that would keep you from coming to God is expiated. So what keeps God from coming to you is propitiated in the cross. And what keeps me from coming to God in my shame is taken away in expiation. Both of those doctrines, Isaiah chapter 6. So that there's no separation. There's nothing to separate me from God. That through a bloody sacrifice, I might be one with Him. See, Jesus is the shame taker. He is that sacrifice. So here's the thing, church. There's lots of things to be ashamed of that we have done. The gospel just isn't one of them. There's a lot of things to be ashamed of. Just the gospel isn't one of them. So, I said I would start with rap music and end with country. So here it is. I'm from Oklahoma. I put it out there. Most of you guys know this. And we are home to, the, I, I don't want to say definitively, but the greatest musician of all time, Garth Brooks. All right? They got a street in Yukon, Garth Brooks Row. What is Garth Brooks doing right now? He just lives in Oklahoma and has a batting cage in his backyard. He hits baseballs, all right, and gives money to hospitals. That's all I know Garth does. Back, this is what's crazy. Do you realize Garth Brooks was 30 years ago? Uh, some of you don't because you weren't alive for the rest of us. Biggest concerts. Love Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks had these, t -sh these shirts, these country shirts with flames. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Y'all still got one of those? Halloween's coming, people. He's got flames coming up the shirt, right? He would do the biggest concerts and just like a true redneck from Oklahoma, zip lining out there. They had a, they had a cable on him. He'd fly over the crowd singing country, all right? And... He had, this, he had this great song. It was the slow dance song of its era. All right? And the song was called Shameless. Anybody know this song? It's good? Like one of you. It's good. Okay. What do you people... Y'all listen to the baby, don't you? It was the rap... See, I got to get everybody. Okay? Shameless. And he basically sings this song to a girl saying... I'm shameless when it comes to loving you. 
right? Anybody know the next lyric? Hey, there it is. I'll do anything you want me to. Because I'm shameless. Even make myself a fool. Because I'm shameless, right? And you're just like, you, you listen to that in middle school and you did, you know, you're trying to do your two-step, your line dance thing going on. And what is it saying? It's saying, listen, I am so in love with you. I am so captured by you. Other people are going to call me a fool because of how wrapped up in you I am. What do you want me to do? I'll do anything. Why? I'm shameless. Nobody can weaponize shame as a deterrent to keep me from loving you. Shameless. I'm beyond being shamed away from loving you. I'll be a fool. I'll do anything you want. Isn't that how relationships work? Church, God has called us into relationship through the cross and invited us to be shameless about the gospel. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to take communion and preach the gospel. I don't know if you're online or if you're here with us. I don't know if that thing that is in your closet that you are most ashamed of if you've ever taken that to the altar in heaven and left it there. But if you've never left your shame at the cross, I want to invite you right now, just between you and God, whoever the scripture has already taught you today, whoever puts their trust in Him will never be put to shame. So give it to Him. Trust Him with it. Between you and God right now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you give him the most shameful things of your life? And you'll, will you receive from him a shameless love? I'm going to pray for you. Father, we eat in your courts with thanksgiving, in your presence of praise. Because you're bigger than our shame, you're bigger than our guilt, and you're bigger than our sin. And so, God, I pray your Holy Spirit would give courage and faith to my friends here that they might be bold enough to lay their most filthy acts and most shameful ways at the cross and embrace your life and walk away changed. God, I love these people. I want them to get it. With all my heart. And so, God, would you, would you do what I can't and just stir their hearts and minds toward affection to you? God, would you make this a house that's unashamed of the gospel, that is bold in Jesus, and that loves him with ten times the ferocity that we ever love sin? God, you're the shame taker. God, you're the life giver. And so come here, God, and do a work through your gospel, through the cross, through the resurrection. God, we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said.